Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today we begin a new series called Full Life and Full Heart, and, and it's going to end on Father's Day. And men, I'm just going to unashamedly ask you to come back on Father's Day. It's going to be a fantastic message for all of us, but it's especially going to be a great message on Father's Day to define strong spiritual manhood, full life and full heart. There are two phrases when you put them together, describe how I think most of us want to feel about our life now and when it ends. We want to have lived life fully, and we want to have our heart be full and overflowing with meaningful, positive differences that we've made and the love that we've both given and received along the way. King David's life is going to be the feature for this series. We're going to look at him, and I think he describes both of those descriptions really well. He lived life to the fullest. He made a great impact. He had great purpose and from his early childhood all the way to his death. And he was described as a man after God's own heart. And his psalms uh, show about him that he was this man full of overflowing heart and love and richness in his life. Today's message, we're going to just take an overall kind of lessons from David's life and distill them to some really critical things just from an overall summary look. And then we're going to go back to more detailed stories in the coming weeks and learn some more things from him. But we're going to look today at some, at some seeds of greatness that were nurtured in David's life by God and by other people in him that led to him being such a great man that still today, 3,000 years later, he's still remembered. His star, named after him, is still on the flag of Israel to this day. And I don't know, is anybody here not have a David in your family line somewhere or in your close friendship circle? I mean, his name is that popular because of this man 3,000 years later, right? We start today with David as a young shepherd boy. He was the youngest boy, likely the smallest of the bunch of brothers who were all strong men in a day when physical strength was a major factor in the success and the respect of a person in their work and in their life that day. And David is a central figure in the Old Testament. In fact, maybe the central figure in the Old Testament. Abraham has 14 chapters about him. Elijah has 11 chapters about him. David has 66 chapters, not including the Psalms and all those other things, 66 chapters dedicated to him. No one else is focused on as much in the Old Testament. He's admired and well-liked, I think, because he's this brave, formidable warrior and leader who accomplished amazing feats of faith and courage and bravery. He took a ragtag group of people and turned them into one of the greatest empires of his day. Within all of that strength and bravery, though, he is also this skilled musician and this world-renowned poet whose writings still have spanned the ages and around the globe even to this day. Yet within all of that, David was still very, very human. See, I think the thing that makes him the most attractive, most relatable, and maybe the most admired of all Old Testament biblical heroes is the fact that he was both so committed to God and successful, and yet he was also so flawed and so real about his flaws at the same time. 
Further, I don't think that the seeds of greatness that we're going to look at today in David's life are isolated to him. I think they're actually seeds of greatness that God has placed in every single one of you here, every one of us. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, what you're going to see today as we discuss these seeds of greatness in David's life and the identity is you're going to see some, some decisions and some hard attitudes and some things that made his connection with God successful. And maybe that'll provide a path for you as well. And you're also going to get to see this amazing picture of how God believed in David in the same way that he believes in you today. So let's set the context of David's life. We see the people of Israel demanding to have a king. They'd never had one before. And God says, you don't want that. It won't be good for that. But if you really insist, I'll give you one. And they did, so he does. And they get Saul, right? Saul's good for a little while, but he begins to become corrupted. And God removes his blessing from him because Saul is constantly sliding further and further into living out of his own insecurity rather than living out of the seeds of greatness that God had placed in him that would have led him to success. So we see in 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel is led by God to go to Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint one of his sons to be the next king after Saul. And you, you may remember the story. Samuel gets there and Jesse brings seven of his sons there. And his first son, Eliab, uh, you know, his name and appearance would make you think that he's definitely the man, Right? And when you read the text, it makes me kind of make this picture that I wonder if he wasn't like this six foot eight Schwarzenegger in his, in, in, when Schwarzenegger was in his prime physical condition, and if he didn't have the presidential look and the commanding vocal presence of Morgan Freeman. It's this, that's kind of a picture that you get, right, of who he is. And Samuel thinks, man, God, you really picked well. This must be the guy. And God says, no, don't consider his appearance. So they bring the second son, no. Third son, no. Fourth son, no. All the way down to the seventh son, God says no to all of them. And Samuel is beginning to wonder, man, did I hear you right, God? Am I in the right place today? And he looks at Jesse and says, are these all the sons you have? Now, that would be a strange question in today's world, right? You have seven sons and someone asks you, is that all you have, right? I mean, and this doesn't mention the sisters. There's probably a whole bunch of sisters in there. So this poor mother of David probably has like 10 to 14 kids already. And the prophet Samuel, without a, having without an epidural, and the prophet Samuel has to ask the question, is that all you have? Right? The Bible, I don't know about you, but I think the Bible and God are really funny. I think they have a great sense of humor. Jesse, in what feels like an afterthought, mentions David, who's the youngest in the field. Someone... Didn't seem to believe in David, did they? Or see the seeds of greatness in him yet, did they? When Samuel finds out they have one more son, he insists that they not sit down to the feast until David is brought in. In that day, the last born also generally meant last in rank. And David comes in from the field, he crests the hill, and Samuel sees this small, the text describes him as this small, ruddy boy. The picture given of David is he doesn't look all that strong and imposing of his person. In fact, he's just kind of cute, right? He's probably kind of the wiry type. David walks in smelling of sheep and sweat, and God says, he's the one. To God, birth order is not important. Jacob, the youngest, chosen over Esau, Isaac, the youngest chosen over the oldest, Ishmael. Joseph, the second youngest chosen. And, and as God's saying that all first-point kids are spoiled brats and that the, he likes younger kids best, that's what I tell my older brothers all the time, right? 
All the non-firstborn said amen. God doesn't care about youngest or oldest. He doesn't care about strongest or bigness. He doesn't care about your vocal presence, your wealth, your success, your talent, your intellect. That's not what the seeds of greatness with God lie in. So what did God see in David that no one else saw? And if we're going to be the kind of people that help water the seeds of God's greatness and other people around us, what do we need to draw out of other people that many don't look for and focus on? And if we want to allow the seeds to grow in us, what do we need to look at and develop in our own lives as well? That's what we're talking about today. First and foremost, I think it is this. It's to cultivate a heart for God. First Samuel 16, we read it earlier, says, don't look on the appearance. But then what does God say? He says, but the Lord looks on the heart. While Eliab and the brothers looked more impressive, God was most impressed with David's heart toward him. David lives this life with an overflowing heart of love and of wonder and of trust and of toward God. I mean, look at the stuff David writes, and, and this is just a sampling, Psalm 9. If you look at the header on it, it says it's written to the tune of the death of a son. In other words, he wrote this out of great sorrow, and yet David's heart bursts forth, and he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name most high. In Psalm 139, David goes further and shows us more of his heart. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 78 is actually written by somebody else about David's reputation after he died. And they write this. They say, and David shepherded the people with integrity of heart, with a singleness of heart. His single focus was to worship God, to be known fully by God, not to hide any part of himself and to be led in the best way, not for himself, but for the sake of the people God had asked him to influence and care about in his life. It's so easy for my heart to get unfocused. Is that, is that true of you as well in life? I think it's one of the reasons we need daily rhythms of worship and prayer and meditation and Bible reading. And we need at least weekly gatherings together with other believers because, because the power of habits to keep us focused on who God wants us to be and our need to have others in our life to help us and encourage us to keep our hearts focused on God. How can you encourage that seed of a heart for God today in yourself or in someone else? There's a second seed of greatness that gets watered along the way. See, David's life was powerfully impacted because of believing in God's great plan for his life. Think about it. Can you imagine this great prophet, national leader, Samuel, coming to Bethlehem? Now, Bethlehem in that day is not a famous town. It's just a small little hamlet. And Samuel and God through Samuel coming and believing in David and anointing him to be king. The power of even just one person we respect, who we see as a person of faith believing in us and speaking God's good plan and his view over who we are. It is so powerful. Now think about it for a second. Where was David before he was anointed in this moment. 
I mean, David was a nobody in the eyes of Israel. He, he wasn't even, he wasn't even, he was chosen to do the chores and be in the field while everyone else got to have the honor of being with this great leader, right? So David comes in and feasts with Samuel the prophet and uh, this revered, even feared spiritual and national leader. Imagine David sitting next to him in the place of honor, a place he has never even sat just with his family much less anyone else. And the elders of the town are also there at this feast during that moment. And then Samuel, after the feast, takes David with him aside with his father and his brothers. In front of them, he anoints David to be the next king of Israel. And the text says that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Okay? What does David do next? What would you do if you had just experienced that next in your life? David goes back to tending sheep, living in obscurity. And it's in this that we see another seed that God placed there and watered. And it's a seed that we don't like to pay attention to in our lives. It's David understood the value and the lessons that we learn in obscurity, in hiddenness, in not being recognized by others. See, sometime later, David is called to play music for King Saul. He's basically called to be the private musician to a king whose fits of anxiety and wrath make him get out of control. So David soothes him with his music. But, but, but what that means is David is the speaker on the wall. He's there to be heard, not seen, even in that moment. And he only does that part of the time. The rest of the time, he's still back tending sheep alone in the field. For years, David is doing this. David still lived in obscurity. Even after the prophet who had believed in him and the seeds of God's greatness and his purpose in his life and anointed him to be king, he still stays relatively unknown, unrecognized. Samuel believed in him. But we also know that during that time, David faced dismissive jealousy from his brothers who tried to stamp out the seeds of his purpose and his calling and the greatness in his life. And yet David's greatness, if you study his life from beginning to end, was cultivated during those years alone, not being recognized yet. See, every person of greatness in life. Lasting greatness has logged time in obscurity and being unnoticed because it's obscurity where our character develops that allows God to release all the good he intends through your life. Think about it. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. Paul follows Christ. He's already a great leader, but he still spends 10 years of relative obscurity. Jesus, 30 years as a carpenter before he d you hear much about him. And we even see this in the business world. Look, at, you can find it in story after story. Sam Walton didn't open his first Walmart until age 44. Duncan Hines didn't write his first food book until age 55. And he wasn't branded as the company who makes cake mixes until he was 73, right? From God's perspective, the lessons of obscurity in our life have to do with our contentment. How content? Are you that God is the one in charge of timing in your life? And the second idea that, that, that obscurity, the second lesson is that, is that if you want to be a good leader, you also have to learn to be a good follower. Joshua followed Moses 40 years. 
Elisha followed Elijah for 10 years. And if you read what it was like for Elisha to follow Elijah, Elijah was not an easy person to follow at all. If you look honestly at the text, right? He's not an easy man. In my life, every, every promotion, if you want to call it that, in leadership came after years of obscurity. Of uh, The best lessons in my life have come out of the most difficult times of not being recognized. See, and I think we all know this too. Often many of us have seen that becoming a leader too young of an age can lead to devastating results of not being ready, of not having dealt with some key character issues, of not understanding how people change well, following well, even, in fact, especially if it is tough to follow someone, is a key shaping influence that prepares each and every one of us to lead and influence really well. Amid that, we also learn this habit of this heart for God in the good and the bad times, especially when no one else is looking in obscurity and especially when it's difficult, learning to trust God and learning to turn to God even in that moment rather than turning away when we're frustrated. It's the foundation of David's greatness and it will be the foundation of you living a life where you have a full life and a full heart that you're joyful with. How do you encourage yourself when you're living unnoticed? How do you encourage your friends and family when you're frustrated with obscurity in your life? There's another seed that's very closely related to this but takes it a step further and it's this, that David attended to the details. David spent years in the details of leading the sheep to pasture, of keeping them together, of honing his writing skills and musical skills in the fields all by himself, of, of, of honing his military skills by fending off bears and wolves and other predators. And, and see, when we trust God that has called us to make a significant difference. And we get that idea in our minds, which he has and which he has for each and every one of us. Often we get caught up in what everyone else gets caught up in. And that's impatience, longing for the big win. Being driven and frustrated until we get to the big wins in our life. And it's a deadly trap. It's a deadly trap because it affects how we view our work and how we view our life. Because the reality is 99% of life is found in the details, in the routine, and it's maybe even dull at times. But the 99% eventually shows up in the 1% of those moments where we break through and promotion occurs and growth of the dream that we've always longed for begins to break through and we get to see it. See, those moments of breakthrough, they're, they're just that. They're just moments. They come and they go. They're usually seasons that are fairly short in our lives and short-lived, and then all the details of work are still there. In fact, after you go through a breakthrough, typically there are more details that you need once you gain success in those things. I mean, going to class, it can be dull, right? Rehearsing an instrument or, 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 a, or a skill can be dull. Feeding or changing a baby can be dull at times. Day after day after day, running like a chicken with your head cut off just to get your kids to and from school, to and from lessons, to and from practices, sitting there waiting for them at the games and waiting for their concert to start. But we have to go through the 99% to get to those 1% impact moments in our lives. Those moments when the normal conversation of the day 
turns to a life-changing conversation. Those moments when all that you've worked for has built to the point, the tipping point where all of a sudden the ball starts rolling and the dream of success is coming true. And those moments when love in its most profound way is experienced and our hearts are filled and overflowing and we realize all the work of the journey has been worth it. Those 1% moments, we only get to go through them if we go through the 99% of the details to get there. See, the, the problem is when we think about purposeful lives, when we think about living great lives and we long for that and we should long for that, we quickly end up getting tired of tending the sheep, of fighting off lions and wolves and bears yet again and doing it all by ourselves. So too often in life we quit too soon and we never get the opportunity to win the big battle God wants us to win because we quit the details. Or we don't quit the details. We just, we just settle into seeing only the details and letting the boring details define who we are so that when opportunity comes along to make a difference, we've lost our hope and our vision. We don't even see it coming along because we've let the details completely define us. Years ago, I was talking to a friend and he was struggling, feeling undervalued, underused, wasn't making a difference like he felt like God designed him to make in life. And as he reflected, all of a sudden, he reflected back to a moment a few years earlier in his life. And as we were sitting there over, over a meal or coffee or something, we were sitting at a table in a restaurant. He talked about how his company a few years ago, was, things weren't going well. He wasn't getting recognized. He, he was getting bored and, and he quit. And shortly after that, the company broke out in great success. And he looked at me, and in a couple lines, he, he preached most of what I've talked to you about today to me when he said, Ross, I traded my birthright for a cup of soup. Referring back to the story of Esau that you may remember in the Old Testament where Esau comes in from all day hunting in the fields, famished and thirsty, and, and he's so famished and thirsty that he trades his birthright to his brother Jacob for a meal of soup. And he went on to say this. He said, if I had just been patient if I had just paid attention to the details and been okay with not getting the kudos and the recognition I wanted, oh, where the Lord would have me today in life. Now, the beautiful thing is God gives second chances, and this friend learned faithfulness in obscurity in the hidden times, learned that most of life is about details, and God has done tremendous things through his life since then, leading him to become a best-selling author and speaker and consultant and leader in his field. It is faithfulness and the little things that allow the seeds of greatness in your life to grow into those 1% moments in life. I saw another friend gain early and quick success in his life, and, but he wasn't a person who was faithful in the little things. And while his early career and life impact soared far faster than everybody else around him, life for him imploded. He lost his marriage. He lost his job. He lost his reputation because he tried too hard to create those 1% moments, pushed too hard for it, being impatient, neglecting the details, and that led him to ruin and disappointment rather than trusting God's timing. See, Jesus says in Luke 16, whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest, cuts corners in very little things, will also be dishonest and cut corners in very big things. See, we need people around us 
to help us stay focused. I don't know anyone who doesn't tend over time to lose focus when we're in the details, who doesn't get caught up being fed up with obscurity in life. See, within all of us, God has placed seeds of greatness. And those seeds of greatness need watering. They need attention. And one of the most powerful things you can do as a mom or as a parent or a teacher or a friend or a coworker is to believe in a person when no one else does, is to pray for someone when no one else is praying for them, is to share your faith with someone when no one else is sharing their faith, your faith in them that God has a good plan for them. God can heal their situation, can bring hope to their situation, and you allow God's love to work through you to water those seeds of greatness so that their barren, hopeless ground all of a sudden becomes this fertile soil full of life. I listened to a clip of the great psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. It's from 1972. It was kind of hard to watch on YouTube, so I didn't bring it to you today to watch. He's the author of Man's Search for Meaning. And in his heavily laden German accent in English, in his old age, he was talking about how he was beginning in his 80s to take flying lessons. And he used this illustration. I, I couldn't find an airplane, so I, I, I got a duck. Um, and... You know, no subliminal messages, go Ducks. Football season is coming around again. Um, So his illustration was this. If you're here in Columbus, just imagine my big gut here, my chest is is Columbus, and you want to get to Philadelphia, which is straight east, but imagine this is a map here, and you've got a north wind coming down 10, 15 miles this way. If you point at Philadelphia and try to fly there, you're going to end up in Washington, D.C., aren't you? So if you want to get to Philadelphia, you actually have to point yourself towards New York, right? And you'll drift down then and you'll get to where you want to be. So the same is true of humanity. If you aim at what you should be, you will end up worse than you are because you will drift. But if you end up aim at the ideal of who you could be, then you'll end up where you want to land. So I'm already feeling a little like I'm putting on professor's spectacles today, so I'm going to quote, uh, quoting one great philosopher, so I'm going to quote two for you right now. Goethe said it this way. He said, when we treat man as he is, we make him worse than he is. When we treat man as if he is already the potentially who he could be, we make him what he should be, right? And what he's saying here is we all have this ideal in life, but we also all have this realistic measure because we know we can never measure up to our ideal of what we should be that falls short of our ideal. So Goda and Frankel are saying if we shoot for this, we will become what we should be and what we hope we can become. And there's something really motivating in this about believing the best in others, isn't there? That's inspiring, motivational. It's wise. But it's also incomplete. It's also at its core not completely biblical. It's, it's close, but not quite. See, God created humankind as, in his image, as the ideal, created very, very good. Sin has caused us to fall from that, and it always tempts us to drift even further to the worst, right? 
I love it. Washington, D.C. is worse than that. That's just kind of appropriate, right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that New York really fits this, but all New Yorkers will feel really good about that, right? The ideal, the ideal is, is the reality that God promises to all lead us to one day. He created us perfect. He created us very good. He created us in his own image. And the promise we have is that that is achievable one day. When we die, when Jesus comes back, it will be achievable. We have a promise of that. So that if we can see ourselves as forgiven and we can see ourselves the way God wants us to see ourselves and if we can see other people in the same way as forgiven, it gives us the power as followers of Christ to believe in people like no one else can in this world. Paul says it this way. Today, though, we still see this ideal in part. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see only a reflection of this, as in a mirror. And remember, in his day, mirrors weren't anything like they are today. So it was a very cloudy view that you got then. But then we shall see face to face. And then he goes on and says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So what's, what's love? Paul powerfully details that just a couple of verses earlier. One of the most famous passages the Bible has ever said. And remember what he says? He says this, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, love is all the character qualities and actions that demonstrate we believe in the seeds that God has placed in another person that we believe in all God created them to be, no matter how damaged they are from life or their own choices in life, we can still believe in who God created them to be. There's a story of Amy Grant and Vince Gill were being interviewed by Larry King, so that tells you it's a while ago. And uh, he was interviewing them about their music careers. He was interviewing about uh, their marriage. And, and Amy starts to tell the story in the interview about how one night she and Vince were at this open mic night, a karaoke night. And this guy got up to sing whose voice was horrible, just awful. And she says, you know, I, I was sitting there trying to, trying to hold it together to be polite, not cringe or not laugh. But when he got done singing, I, I leaned over to Vince and I, I just whispered to Vince, what did you think of that guy's voice? And Vince said with a sense of wonderment and almost awe in his voice, he says, isn't it amazing? Whenever anyone opens their mouth and sings, you hear a little bit of their soul. And she just went, I'm just so not a good person, <laughs> you know? And Vince, one of the most famous country tenors ever, saw something different in that moment of excruciating sound. He admired and he believed in who the person was made to be. See, Paul goes on with a certainty that neither Goethe or Frankel can say because they say if we believe in another as though they were this, then they will still be what they will be what they should be. But that still means they're fallen short of the ideal. 
See, Paul concludes the power of love by saying what? Anybody remember what we left out on that? He says, love never fails. God promises to complete the work in each and every one of us, not just get us halfway there to an acceptable place. God promises through you and I as the church, as we love our community, as we believe in our community, as we believe in our friend next to us and stand with them in the lonely times of obscurity and the dull and frustrating times of the details that they can become more than they can ever imagine. Because it's not just us who have the power of belief in others that makes a difference. It's also that God has the power of belief in you, which is what the great prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 55. He, he writes this chapter during a time when the crosswinds have taken Israel way off course into slavery and poverty and hunger and ruin. And he records God's words to us about us, believing on us during that time. And God says this, he says, come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, who are so impoverished, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Turn to the Lord and he will have mercy to our God, for he will freely pardon. And this is where God starts to speak to us about his belief in you in no uncertain terms. He goes on next and says, for my thoughts. Now remember, what are his thoughts? He's just been talking to an impoverished people, poverty, hunger, the damage of sin and slavery, addiction and sadness, talking to those people and saying, I'm going to give you the provision to be something much better. I'm going to give you what you long for. So he says, those are the thoughts that he's thinking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my way, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts for you, about you, are much better and much higher than your thoughts. See, most of my life I've read that scripture and I just thought God was saying I'm dumb. He's really smart, right? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about raising you up in that context into who you are. His thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. And he goes on and says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. In other words, he's saying... And my word has gone out to give you everything you dream of, the ideal you want, the security and the provision and the love you long for in life. And then he goes on and says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It will surely achieve the purpose because love never fails. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Life higher than you ever imagined, better than you can ever imagine, more full than you have ever imagined. God thinks more highly of you than you do. 
His good plans for you are higher than anything you can ever think of. God believes in the seeds he has placed in your life. If your job is less than you want it to be, it can be much better. If your marriage is less than you want it to be, it can be much better. If your friendships are less than you want them to be, they can be much better. And that much better comes by us each believing God has placed seeds of greatness in each of us. And he fully intends to make them flourish. And they grow in us by us showing the kind of love that believes in each other, even when others don't believe in themselves. So that when we get to the end, each and every one of us can say, I lived a full life and my heart is full with the great memories. See, God is inviting us now today and through this series to think of yourself as he does. If we think lower of ourselves, we will always be lower. Even if we think of ourselves as we should be. See, we go around living trying to be as we should be, which basically means we're trying to be good enough. We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to earn what we get. As long as we live with that kind of tension, we will always be lower than we should be. It's only when we realize this ideal, this gift is given to us. It's given to us. And we receive it. And we trust it's not our word, it's God's word to us that does not return void, that his love does not fail, that we can rest and we no longer have to live by should be. We get to live in the love and the power and the spirit of God in our lives. Let's stand. Lord, we just ask you that you'd come and you'd bring that truth home to each and every one of us deeper and more strongly this week. Lord, that you would just help us to receive your provision that you freely give. There's no cost to it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. And yet you freely offer it. And Lord, that you would make us into people who are like you, who believe in each other, who believe in our community, who believe in our families and our friends in ways that allow them to experience that same hope, that same life, that you're offering us right now. So Lord, we just come to you right now and we worship you. We worship you for that goodness. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.